I'm a travel editor, which means sometimes I also end up back on the road. So today we're revisiting an episode about European cities while I'm off island hopping in the Caribbean and exploring the Arizona desert. We'll be back next week with a fresh new episode. Enjoy! Hi, and welcome to the second episode of our new Women Who Traveled, with me, your host, Lale Arikoglu. This episode is about European cities, and specifically getting to know them on foot and by public transport. I'm invested in this because, I confess, I don't drive. But many people also don't feel like driving in, say, the traffic of Rome or in the narrow streets of an ancient French city. It simply isn't the best way to get around. I'm chatting today to two authors whose writing I love about our ties to cities. They're Rebecca Mead, who, like me, is English and who thought she'd settled in New York but found herself moving to London four years ago. London is so convoluted and, you know, all these little villages all stuck together with all these peculiar routes between them. And I've never really understood how London joins up. And there's still vast swathes of it that I don't know how they connect. And Elif Batman, who, like me, has close ties with Istanbul and who, a decade ago, swapped New York for Istanbul on an extended visit, a city that straddles both Europe and Asia. So there are all of these sort of former fishing villages that go down the Bosphorus. There's Sariyar, and then there's Arnavutte, and there's Rumelihisar, and Bebek, and there are all these kind of like posh places. Boazici University is, is on there. And you go down, and at the bottom there is uh, Taksim, that's like this very transportation hub, and, and that's the downtown. This week, we put out calls to our listeners for European town walkabouts. This is Zakia Triffi. My name is Zakia. I'm originally from Paris, and I've lived in New York and moved to London in 2018. I want to talk about Budapest, a city I love. Budapest has a lot to offer. It is beautiful and very walkable, and I recommend getting on the water to see its beauty right before sunset, walking up to Fisherman's Bastion and admiring the grandiose of Parliament's reflection on the water from the top of the Buddha Hills where a plethora of villas could remind you of Belair. But what I discovered at Budapest that made me really fall in love with the region is to bike along the Buddha side of the Danube towards the small villages, passing by Santendre, to pick up some paprika and lavender, amongst other souvenirs, and Etiak, another stunning small town with charming little wineries, a particular estate with a remarkable architecture, and a delightful pool to cool off the heat of these summer days is my favorite, Harasti. The food is amazing, and the atmosphere and the crowd is the same people you'll meet in the hip bars and restaurants of the city on a Saturday evening in the 5th district. What makes the city so special is not only the ease to get around, from the cathedral to the shopping area on foot, or simply strolling along the Danube as a perfect way to visit Budapest, but the thermal bath, which offers a stunning setting to round off a visit 
and relax in the city of Bath. And here's listener Laura Donnan's story. So last fall, I had the privilege of traveling by myself to Croatia. And the last part of my trip was in Dubrovnik. One of the big tourist attractions is to walk the medieval city walls. While I was walking around, uh, there are a couple of cafes which kind of dot the walls. And I was near one of them just taking a picture and one of the Uh, He was a manager of the cafe. He came up to me and offered to take my picture, and we just started chatting and um, ended up exchanging contact information. Oh, he had also brought me a free glass of wine. So there was a little bit of a flirtatious tone, I would say. But anyways, so the last night of my trip before I headed back to the States, we had agreed that I would go meet him up by his cafe up on the city walls where he had invited me after the walls were closed to the public. So when I got there, as he was closing up the shop, um, I was able to just walk by myself a little bit around the walls and just take some amazing pictures of the sunset with with no one in sight. And uh, when I got back to the cafe, he had a bottle of Croatian wine open and waiting for us. And we just sat and talked and drank wine and watched the sun go down. I would definitely call it the perfect ending to an incredible trip. We decided to move to London, which is the city in which I was born, but it's not really a place that I had lived. I'd lived there as a Very small child, but I've moved away when I was three years old. Rebecca Mead, on her book Homeland. I moved to New York in my early 20s after leaving university in England, and I thought I was moving to New York for a year. And it turned out that I moved to New York for about 30 years. And I'd become an American citizen and had a family and all the rest of it. And then a few things happened, 2016 election being one of them, but not the only one, that made me and my husband decide with our then 13-year-old son, that we would leave New York and make a change. And so to me, it felt like in some ways a homecoming, but actually not, because I was very unfamiliar with the city. I'd been here many times for work, obviously, but I, I didn't know it. I didn't have a place in London to return to. So there's this very strange thing where you retransplant yourself to an environment that you know, in some ways is so familiar. You know, the sound of my feet on the pavements of London, the kind of, there's a, there's a kind of echoing hollow sound of your heels hitting the streets that sounds completely different than your heels on the asphalt of New York. There's a different music to the city. There's a different smell to the city. There's so many things about it in a sensory way that feel so different, but they were also, you know, familiar to me from very early childhood. So it was a strange kind of re-immersion in something I'd forgotten, like an adoptive child who's returned to a birth parent who's unfamiliar. That's so funny what you said about the sound of your feet 
on the pavement. I've never really thought about that before, but I can hear the London pavement and it is so different from the New York one. Yeah. <laughs> it rings, it rings. Whereas the New York one is kind of, it's a deader sound. Somebody should make a piece of modernist music comparing the two. Yeah, I'm write, writing notes. Yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> um, talk a little, you, you know, you mentioned the sensory differences, but what was the sort of sensory overload? What was the sounds, the smells? You know, after dark, everywhere's really, all of residential London's really quiet. My son was so agitated by the absence of traffic noise and voices outside our window and all of that. He found it, I mean, he said it was boring, but I think it wasn't that it was boring. It was that it was so alien and so distressing. And certainly now in my life, I am ready for some quiet. And, I'm, and I love the fact that I can, you know, I, there's not this incessant noise coming through the window. But certainly when I was in my mid-20s in New York, that noise, that constant kind of clangor and agitation was something that I loved about it. And I loved being part of it. Well, then I feel like there's a sort of certain period of your life in New York, which is about not being in your apartment. It's about being out in the city and being in that noise. And to me, I always think about how if and when I move back to London, I'll be seeking out something slightly different. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, there's also that the difference in temperament between the people, which is also part of the environment. So I remember feeling when I moved to New York that I was so relieved or kind of energized by the fact that people yelled at each other on the subway or, you know, you could curse somebody out if they shoved you or something like that. There was all these things that were, there was a kind of vocal energy, you know, in, in London, nobody says anything and everybody sits and quietly fumes. I know. Yeah, we are strange. Like you sort of touched on it a bit and you mentioned kind of some of the contrast but obviously this episode is sort of focused on that ritual of walking. London is so convoluted and you know all these little villages all stuck together with all these peculiar routes between them and I'd never really understood how London joins up and there's still vast swathes of it that I don't know how they connect you know and if you ride around on the tube in London you emerge and you don't know how far you've gone or how you got from one bit of one corner to another so when I first got here, I did spend, and still do as much as I can, walk between places or take a bus if, if I have to, so that I can sort of see the way that the bits of the city connect. And you, are, you learn something about the history of the city that way, like, you know, the Hampstead Road that my bus goes along is, you know, the old road that the farmers used to drive the livestock down to get to the meat market at Smithfield. And because it is such an old city and there's so much history inscribed in these streets, you know, when you walk around in the city of London, past these massive skyscrapers and banking buildings, and then you come across bits of the old Roman wall of London. And that is, I find it absolutely thrilling. Where in London, for those who don't know it, where do you live and what's it like? Just describe it a little. I live in North London. I live very close to, I mean, minutes walk from Hampstead Heath, which is a beautiful area of kind of preserved countryside. It's not a park. I mean, there are paved pathways through it, but there's also a lot of unpaved pathways. There's woodlands, there are ponds. There's no lighting. So at night, it's totally dark. 
it's not like a city park. It's like a little patch of countryside that was preserved from development, about the same size as um, Central Park. One place I think of in Hampstead Heath, but I'd like to know if there are others you're thinking of, are the ponds. Yes. And the swimmers in the ponds. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there are, for your listeners that don't know, there are many ponds on the Heath, but there are three in which swimming is permitted. There's a men's pond, a ladies' pond, and a mixed pond. And the men's and the ladies' ponds are open all year. And I ended up swimming through the winter, and now I do that regularly. I mean, I'm, I've become one of those crazy people that swims year-round. I mean, I swim alone. I'm quite in my head when I'm doing it. And also, when it's very cold, you've got to just be, like, concentrating on, you know, not dying. But it's also, it's, it's very social, and everybody's, like, heads above the water, breaststroke, chat, chat, chat. You know, it's really charming and quite fun to eavesdrop on other swimmers as they go by like the ducks i love that maybe i should <laughs> tell try me maybe, maybe at christmas i yeah. should go for a swim tell me next time you're here and i'll take you i will take you up on that Definitely. in contrast to the chatter of of the ponds walking around london is sort of i mean obviously you can do it in groups but it's sort of inherently can be filled with solid a sense of solitude you know where have been some of your favorite places that you've somewhat stumbled upon there are lots of places I've sort of just wandered through and stumbled across. I mean, the one that comes to mind is the old St. Pancras Church Cemetery, which is right by St. Pancras Station, founded in the 18th century. And it had to be partially dug up for the laying of the railroad into St. Pancras Station. So, you know, graves were dug up and the gravestones were removed. And there's a tree around which dozens of gravestones have been arranged. And it's called the Hardy Tree. And the story about it is that Thomas Hardy, the novelist, was, and this, this is a true fact, that Thomas Hardy, before he became a novelist, was an architect. And he worked on, as a, as a very young man, one of his early jobs was working on this removal of these graves from the graveyard. And he writes about it in his autobiography about how they had to exhume these bodies at night so that gawkers wouldn't look at them. But what's happened is that the roots of the tree and the trunk of the tree have grown in and among these arranged gravestones so that you can't tell exactly what's tree and what's stone. And the inscriptions have become very, very faded and they're covered with moss and they're covered with lichen. And so the, the stones look like stone again you know they don't look like manufactured things anymore so that's that's one that i had never heard of and found and found very do you know it i don't and i'm like i mean my jaws sort of open because i just i didn't know it at all and i have to go see it next time i'm in yeah, london it's and it's making me think about how london has so many like physical layers of history and lives led and I never thought about it when I was growing up there but when I go back now it's a very and, and I, d I don't say this in like a negative way I say I find it like enchanting but it's a very like haunted city to me is that something that struck you walking around yeah yeah I mean yes this very very conscious of this sense of you know very ancient history I mean we should point out of course that there were people in North America yes, um, yes and they yes. do have a history it's just it's not as visible and has been rendered invisible. Yeah, I mean, there have been efforts to make it more visible, but it's not 
part and parcel of the fabric of the material fabric of the city. I mean, interestingly, though, in New York, so many of the names come from Native American names for places, so Manhattan and so on. I mean, that you know, if you stop to think, it's there, but it's not. But we don't most mostly don't stop to think. Sort of put put you on the spot, but kind of in a few words, what does London sound like to you? Oh God. I don't know. There are so many different sounds, but there's like, you know, the sort of blur of voices of like a group of people gathering around a pub at the end of the working day on a Thursday or a Friday evening. That kind of just just that that sort of hilarity and chatter that you can't really distinguish, but you can sort of sense in the same way that you can like sense the smell of the beer in the air. That's one thing that I find um, really kind of charming about London, the, the sort of willingness and eagerness to just have fun and unwind. But So that's one of the sounds. But, you know, everything from, as I say, the, you know, the heels on the, on the pavement to, this, to this, just the silence. Of this, or the, 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 the sounds of the foxes, you know, squawking and fighting at night because there are that's another thing that I just found unbelievable that there are the streets are full of foxes and um, people here regard them as pests. I think a lot of the time I think of them as magical creatures, visitors from another realm. Um, but that's because I'm new. I also think of the foxes that way. Yeah. There was one that used to sunbathe at the back of my parents' house on the top of some extension, and literally, he, so this fox would be there every day. It was sunny, and I just thought it was most yeah, like a cause of a visitor from another realm. I love that. So I actually just want to ask one more question, which I had meant to ask earlier, and then got excited about the ponds and the foxes and. I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Honestly, well, exactly. <laughs> but from, I think we um, both share a connection to Fort Green Park in Brooklyn because yeah. I live a stone's throw away, and it has a very special place in my heart, and also kind of got me through the darkest points of lockdown. What does that park mean to you? And do you think that the Heath is kind of the equivalent that you found in London? There's a weird familial connection to Fort Green Park. So I didn't just live close to it, but my husband is on his mother's side, descended from the general for whom the park, or that, that the fort, not the park, but the fort was originally named, which is not Fort Green, but Fort Putnam. I think all of us, you know, if we think about place and we think about our place in those places, you want to sort of knit yourself into the fabric of the place and to see your own story kind of knitted into it it was very funny my best friend from secondary school actually lives sort of a few blocks away from me which is amazing and I was walking th I was running through Fort Green Park a few weeks ago and I ran into her and she was reading your book oh wow how wonderful <laughs> so you can know that your book is being read oh that's very that's very moving to me thank you for letting me know of course thanks <laughs> remember to stay up to date on all things Women Who Travel, make sure you're subscribed to the Women Who Travel newsletter via the link in our show notes and that you're following Women Who Travel on Instagram. After the break, author Elif Batterman maps about the city of Istanbul.
Author Elif Batman spent four years living in another old city, Istanbul. It was during a time of protest, and she experienced the city in all its turbulence and sense of great possibility. Well, if you hadn't already gathered by my name, I am also Turkish. Yay. Which... (laughs) Um, I will say that growing up in London, I feel what, like what a treat for you. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, what a wild family to have back in Turkey. <laughs> but you know, growing up in London, my year was relatively diverse at school. But for some reason, I was just like, I'm not interested in that side of me. I like just want to be English which would probably break my dad's heart to hear me say out loud now. And it's only in like recent years that I've started to get really excited about that part of my life and seeing that there's this whole kind of place to explore and get to know in all its complexities and also magic. I almost felt like Turkish identity was something that I wasn't entitled to have because my parents, especially my mom, had made so many sacrifices for me not to have to experience a burden and for me to kind of get to be American. And it it wasn't until relatively recently that I was like, you know, I can have my own relationship to this side of my identity that's not completely mediated by my parents, which also came from like spending time in Turkey and meeting people who are younger than me and they have their own way of viewing the world. It's been really fun to interact with them, too. I was reading something you wrote in like the London Review of Books that talked about some time you spent in Istanbul about 2010. You moved there for a stint? Yes, 2010 to 2013, 2014, I was there, yeah. In Gezi Park, 100 yards away, everyone was suffering. The tear gas drifted across in great invisible clouds. There seems to be tear gas everywhere tonight. It's dispersed around a wide area, and it's not completely clear where it's coming from. We're not seeing the running battles that we saw last night, but what we are seeing are many people with their eyes streaming, unable to cope. The protesters' focus has turned to the behaviour of the police and the belligerence of Prime Minister Tayyip Erdogan. He will not say, I'm sorry, but what he needs to say, the brutal force is not needed. We are coming back, so we are giving the Taksim Square and Beşiktaş to all the people, and we are free. What was that three, four years like there? I was a writer in residence at Koç University in Istanbul, and I was teaching writing in English, mostly to native Turkish speakers. And I was writing for The New Yorker about subjects that had to do with Turkey, but I was kind of avoiding politics. Like, oh man, I really want to write about that time, but it was so it was so complicated. There was so much going on. It was kind of like some people were still pro-Erdogan, like including people in the American left were still pro-Erdogan. And some people were already like, he's an authoritarian. What was sort of your daily routine? I So for part of the time, I lived on the university campus. And then I moved to Jihangir, where some of my expat friend that was where all the New York Times people were at that a lot of the like war correspondent people were kind of their base was in Istanbul and they wouldn't they would go to you know wherever they would go Iraq and and Syria that's actually where I was when in 2013 when the Gezi protests started and then I had an apartment that was in Jihangir right near 
Taksim where the protesting was. So a lot of the times the road would be closed. So there were like people staying in my apartment sometimes to do protests. That was a very exciting time when a lot of my ideas changed. And it felt like all of these stories were coming up and it just felt like this incredibly rich and exciting time that then the, the promise of that did not last in quite the way that we'd all hoped. I did a couple of architecture stories, but this one was when they, they were constructing the Marmarai train line to connect Europe and Asia. There was all of this kind of the construction going on and uprooting and excavations and also like the barricades, like the political protesters had uprooted some amount, you know, like I just remember the ground being dug up for all of these different purposes. I was reporting a story about they did this excavation and they found this large number of freakishly preserved Byzantine shipwrecks. And then they were like, oh, finally we got these shipwrecks out and now we can excavate further. And then they found like Neolithic footprints and they didn't even know that there had been a land bridge there. That's such like a visual description of this, just literally like the ground being turned upside down to unearth all these stories. Mm -hmm. I love it. The loose overarching theme of this episode we're putting together is walking and sort of getting to know and understand cities by foot. It was sort of inspired by the fact that I can't drive. <laughs> <laughs> what a productive limitation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like to think it's a good one. Istanbul is, I would say, is a walking city, but it's a sprawling city and it has so many layers to it and so many hills. When you kind of parachute in for a family trip, you kind of like see who you need to see and do the things you need to do and then you leave. And to actually have the time to just get to know it by foot, even if it is just like walking to the bus to go to the university campus, like even just those moments give you such like an understanding of a place. Did you feel like it gave you something that other trips, those shorter trips hadn't? Oh yeah, definitely. I, when I was living in the university campus, it was sort of like up in the hills and you would take these, you know, as you know, there's this network of Dolmush buses, which are like these mini buses that are connecting everything, which is the actual geography that the people who are, especially the people who aren't so wealthy and don't necessarily have cars, like that's how they get around. And there's, you know, a certain amount of professors and grad students. And then there's also livestock. And I remember once I was on one of those buses and I was just sitting there and this woman who was dressed in kind of like village dress, she had like a little girl with her and she was like, okay, I'll bless the, and she just like plunked her kid on my lap, like big sister, like just, and then I just had this kid on my lap. I thought that where I was living was like a one mile minibus ride from where my office was. And I thought, oh, I'll just walk. But part of the walk was on this highway. So I, you know, I walked there once and there was like no kind of shoulder on the road. And like, you know, it was like a 15, 20 minute walk. And in that time, like at least 10 cars honked or stopped. And then finally one delivery guy on a moped stopped and he was like, you know, you can't walk here. This is not safe. And I was like, why is it not safe? And he's like, bad people come, like they come. I was like, like what bad people? And he's like, how should I know what bad people? Like just get on the bike. So then the <laughs> I just remember this, like, I don't know, just like the wind, the breeze in my hair as I was sitting on the back of the moped. And we got to the place where I lived and he was like, it's here, right? And I was like, no, it's a little further. <laughs> off and by the end I think he like he wanted to get rid of me and I wanted to keep riding so our dynamic had changed <laughs> I love the story so much <laughs> oh that's great <laughs> I visited Istanbul a lot as a child and then have started to get to know it again as an adult 
but I find it an incredibly overwhelming and intricately mapped city. For those who aren't familiar with it, give us a little bit of an overview of the map of the places that you were spending your time in. I was, I was really spending most of my time on the European side of the city. So the university was north of Sariyar. So there are all of these sort of former fishing villages that go down the Bosphorus. And there are all these kind of like relatively posh places. And you go down and at the bottom there is Taksim, which is insofar as there is a center in Istanbul, that's it's Taksim. It's like this very transportation hub. And there's Taksim Square. And then there's this like pedestrian street, Istiklal Justice, which is where all of the sort of biggest brand stores are. And it's, it's this packed street. If, if you've seen any pictures of Istanbul, you see pictures of this like giant street. And that's the shopping center, at least of the European side. The Byzantine shipwrecks were at north of Taksim. There's uh, So previously, there were only bridges connecting the European and the Asian side. And then they finally built an underground train line. And that's where they found the shipwrecks. When I move around the city, I look Turkish enough that people just assume I'm Turkish. And then as soon as I open my mouth... I out myself as as British, British born, and I can't speak Turkish. Oh, do they have a concept of that? Like, oh, you don't speak and Turkish. I don't speak Turkish. So I give myself away immediately. Okay. Do you feel like you're treated first and foremost as Turkish or as an American? I speak Turkish with an accent. I can like go for several sentences before <laughs> before problems come up. I also remember noticing that I would want people not to notice that I was not from Turkey. Like I would be like, oh, maybe I can get through this conversation without anyone being like, where are you from? I find it more and more travel to be kind of like ethically complicated because you're also like, as soon as I talk it, especially depending on the class, it's like, they're like, oh, you have enough money to get on an airplane. And I've never been on an airplane. Like it immediately all of these things come in, which is like, why do you have these things that I don't have? And then to feel in myself, oh, I hope I don't have to go to that place of guilt in this conversation makes me feel like I'm trying to get away with something. I think what you said about just thinking about travel kind of being like ethically complicated is really interesting. Yeah, it's not. There are, these questions don't have very clear answers. I think part of it is not just... to be a bummer on the travel podcast. <laughs> no, no, this is exactly <laughs> what I want to talk about on this podcast. And I think it's like accepting that the important thing is to ask those questions and maybe we just haven't figured out some of the answers yet. I don't remember these questions being asked when I was a kid, when I was younger. So the fact that we're asking them, we're, of course, we're not at the answers yet. And it's important not to be demoralized just because we don't have the answers right now. On the subject of choosing places to live and you said that you know you're based in New York right now how do New York and Istanbul compare and do you feel like they each give you something different they're so different the New York worldview and the Istanbul worldview and I did feel like they were a very productive and and fun alternation this summer I was actually I was in Istanbul and I was hanging out on Burgazada which is one of the prince's islands with some friends and you know, you can go swimming there in the Sea of Marmara and the produce was so wonderful. And 
I mean, they're having a horrible economic crisis and people are really, really suffering. And as a result, the dollar is very strong. It's, you know, there's ethical problems everywhere. But like, I just had such a wonderful time there. The human relations felt so much more kind of like organic and it was so much easier to see people. And there were more public spaces and outdoor spaces where we could kind of like congregate and not feel like we were fleeing from one place where we're going to have to pay $23 for a glass of wine to another. And there were children and old people. And I was like, okay, this is actual life. There are several islands that are known as the Prince's Islands, and they're between 40 and 70 minute ferry ride from the mainland. So some people live there all year round and they're, they're popular for vacations, but they're a part of Istanbul. But you, most of them, you can't drive a car. I visited one of those islands as a kid and I still remember the magical feeling of getting to know a place that has no cars. Finally, here's a lyrical description of an evening in Malta from Genevieve Aaron, who sent us this dispatch. I decided to go to Malta solo, and my most memorable experience was in Schlendi Bay. It's a narrow bay with steep cliffs on either side, and the south side has layers of five-floor apartments, a row, then stairs down to a promenade, then more stairs down to the water. And after dinner, I grabbed a gelato to go and walked over to the steps just above the water to watch the sunset. It was a Saturday night, and someone lit candles all along the steps. I'm assuming it's so you know where to walk once it got dark and a pop-up stage was set up in the corner of the bay where live music played and even night divers were getting into the water and i saw their flashlights swim by there was so much life going on around me but it was so peaceful at the same time i sat there for almost a full hour being in the moment not even really thinking about anything just watching diminish daylight the growing glow of candlelight and town light and the gentle waves it was a really memorable experience Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Lale Hanna, and follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton Brown is our composer. Brett Fuchs and Jennifer Nolson were our engineers. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. Next week, I'm so excited to be sitting down with the unpredictable often outrageous Chelsea Handler to talk about crisscrossing America for her recent Netflix show Revolution and the characters she met along the way.